Welcome to the Service Academy Sorority, a space where women that have graduated from the service academies can share their stories and build a sense of camaraderie and sisterhood. This episode features Karen Fuller Tynan, a 1987 graduate from the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. In this episode, you'll hear all about what it was like to be a woman at Kings Point in the 1980s, how Karen landed a sailing job on tankers with Chevron, stayed there for 10 years post-graduation, and why she eventually felt it was time to move on to something new. Karen also speaks about her transition out of the world of sailing and how she ultimately ended up in California practicing employment law. As a side note, Karen didn't mention this in the interview, but it turns out that when she made the decision to leave Chevron, she was actually the highest ranking woman in the Chevron fleet at the time. So across the board, Karen's been one of our Academy sisters paving the way. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, Can you start off by telling everyone where you're from, what school you went to, and when you graduated? So I'm originally from Georgia. I went to the United States Merchant Marine Academy, Kings Point, and graduated in 87. Nice, 87. (laughs) Yeah, I can't wait to hear about that. (laughs) In the 80s. In the 80s. Okay, but to start, can you give everyone one to two lines about who you are today? So today, I am an attorney practicing in California. I practice employment law and workplace safety and have a family and a couple of dogs, a couple of cats, and um, I enjoy golf a lot. So if any of our sisters out there are golfers. I really like to get my plug in early that I'm always looking for a golf buddy. <laughs> it's funny as you're talking, I can hear that Georgia accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't go away, um, especially after I talk to my sisters on the phone or, you know, have a couple of glasses of wine. It comes back out. <laughs> nice. All right. But okay. So to start, Uh, let's go back to the beginning when you were deciding where to go to college. Um, What made you choose a service academy and what made you specifically choose the United States Merchant Marine Academy? So my path in high school started out because of a letter I got in the 11th grade from the junior ROTC scholarship coordinator And at that time, every high school that had a junior ROTC program got a engineering scholarship for that school if a a student met all the parameters. And that coordinator realized he had no qualified individuals in the junior ROTC program. So he wrote a letter based on I think PSAT or SAT results, something like that. And um, basically saying, look, if you want to, you can join ROTC. Um, We have this opportunity for a scholarship, things like that. So uh, I went to talk to him and he said, look, you know, academically, you know, you'll get this Air Force scholarship, but why don't we also put in your applications for federal academies? And I had had no idea up until that time. And this is probably like May of my junior year. And so he helped me do all those applications. 
and um, start the physical process. And in the end, I think that I did not have 20-20 vision, so that knocked me out, and that left Kings Point. And I also had a cousin, I didn't have a close familial relationship with him, but he was class of 72 Kings Point. And mm -hmm. so my family knew a tiny, tiny bit about it, but not very much. Um, I never talked with him about going to the academy, so it's not any kind of big family legacy or connection. But that was how it all started from uh, just a person that wanted to see a scholarship used in a high school and then, you know, worked with me, took an interest in helping me, and he had a very big impact. Hmm. So, so you had never heard of the Federal Service Academies at that point? No, and if you, you think about the early 80s, it definitely wasn't a time when there was as much awareness about the opportunity of service academies. Obviously, Kings Point, the Merchant Academy, is well known as the first academy to have women. Um, but, it, you know, it just wasn't on my radar. I thought I would go to Georgia Tech and, or, you know, maybe another small college. But that was what I had perceived as my opportunities, maybe Georgia Tech, maybe another school. And but then everything kind of changed when I came to know more about the service academies. Yeah. So tell me more about that as you started to dive into the federal service academies and what they what they are and what you have to do to when you're in them and your commitment. Like what really appealed to you about them? What stands out to me uh, for the Merchant Marine Academy was how they pitched the uh, time at sea, you know, your cadet year at sea, and the kind of academic reputation of the academies. At that time in the 80s, when you looked at college rankings across the United States, the academies were even in their own category because they were just so rigorous. The education was considered to be so elevated. Uh, and, you know, that definitely appealed to me. I would say that um, without the 2020 eyesight, and I don't know how it is today, but in the 80s, if you didn't have 2020, but, you know, any kind of vision issue, um, you weren't going to get into the Naval Academy or Army or Air Force. So, um, you know, I, I quickly found out that wasn't going to be an option. Uh, interesting. Yeah. The only thing I remember is you couldn't be colorblind going to Kings Point. <laughs> that's all I remember. But, um, but that's interesting. I was going to ask you about that because you mentioned the 2020. So, so when you found out that you, you weren't 2020, that meant you didn't apply to the other academies and you only spent, you only applied to Kings Point? Right. So um, the ROTC person that was working with me said, look, we can try to get a waiver, but most of the vision waivers are for, you know, athletes. And, um, you know, how about if we really put all your effort into Kings Point? And how about if that's how we kind of um, pitch you for your congressional nomination? And so that was the tactic we took. Now, 
at this point, so you're, you were living in Georgia. Um, had you ever been around ships? Uh, did you spend a lot of time at the ocean? Um, what was, what was that like for you? Um, you know, I always have loved the ocean. Um, like a lot of people, I just enjoy water. Um, and I was very comfortable on small boats. I didn't really have a concept of big ships or what going to sea looked like. I'd never been on a cruise. I'd never been on a tugboat. I didn't have any kind of family connection in that way. Frankly, uh, quite a few of my members, members of my family were in law enforcement or, you know, other careers. It, it wasn't something that I had a particular connection to, but I have to say that um, the idea of going to sea, the idea of traveling, the idea of something different, of a journey outside of my upbringing, definitely appealed to me. Mm. And how did your family feel about it? Because you were going to be heading up to New York. Everybody was just really proud and supportive. Um, you know, it also at that time, and I, I think today maybe there's some fees that get paid, but at that time, you didn't even write a check at the academy, not for haircuts, not for a yearbook, not for a uniform. I don't think I ever, you know, paid for anything. And so definitely the idea of a free, exceptional education um, appealed to my family and um, everyone was very supportive. And you said that uh, back then it was pretty well known that, um, that the Merchant Marine Academy was the first academy to accept women? Yeah, that's my perception. And I think that um, when I was there in, in, in doc in, what would that be, 83? There were still some companies at the academy that had not had women yet. And so our summer in 83 was the first time that there were women in every company, all seven companies. Oh, wow. Hmm. Before it had been like first, third, and fifth maybe or something. So I ended up um, with a group of three other women getting assigned to second company as plebes, as plebes mean the first year. I don't know what they call them at other schools, but, um, and so that was a little bit difficult. I think they had, and maybe the first year that women were there, I think they were only in one certain company. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So, but let's back up for a second. So when you were applying, you, you honed in on the Merchant Marine Academy because of your eyesight and then the whole idea of see your appeal to you. Um, did you go up and visit the academy? I did. My dad and I took a trip up there and had the kind of typical experience where a uh, plebe, you know, is in their kind of ice cream suit walking you around the campus telling you how great it is. And that's, I spent a day there. I think it was just one day. And, uh, you know, kind of went through and saw what some of the academics would be, uh, walked down to the piers, the wharf area where the King's Pointer, the training vessel was, and the sailboats, and the, um, I can't even remember, what do they call those, the rowboat 
plants that are there. What do they call those? The, the monomoys? Yes, the monomoys. <laughs> um, so the monomoys are there, all that. And, um, you know, it is a beautiful campus. And so, you know, I thought, okay, you know, we'll do it. Yeah, that view will get you every time. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it pulled me into. <laughs> um, what was the feel on the campus when you went for that visit? Because, you know, women were still um, not a huge population on campus. Did you feel any, any like tension or anything about you being a, no, a, no, not, not okay. then. No, not at all. No tension. Interesting. And um, I hmm. think I probably didn't realize how much of a minority women would be. I think the numbers weren't very clear. I thought, oh, okay, it's very male dominated and there'll be a particular ratio but I didn't think the ratio would be quite as unequal as it was. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So what was the plan? Uh, because, you know, Kings Point has like deck and engine and not that many majors. So when you decided to go to the Merchant Marine Academy, what was your original intention? What did you hope to do uh, and study while you were there? I definitely, um, after looking at the program, thought, oh, okay, I'll be a deck major and, you know, see where it goes. I, I wasn't so sure I wanted to go to sea, but I thought I'll be a deck major. But then what happened when we first got there as plebes, they wanted all the women grouped together in second company. And two of the women were, were in the engineer track as plebes and two were deck. And they didn't want to split us up, so they made us two deck gals start with in the engineering track. You know how you take both the classes, like you still take yeah. um, introduction to marine engineering, and you take um, I can't remember, you know, drafting and and all that. And so we ended up being grouped in with the people who started out in the engineering track, and then I think at the end of the first year is when if I'm correct, that no, maybe it's at the end of the second quarter after two quarters, right? That's when you kind of get into your track. Yeah. And um, that's when I was able to switch back and be all with people who are going to be deck majors. It's so interesting because uh, the academy, when I was there, was on the trimester system. And I remember like it had just switched from the quarter system. So it's just interesting to hear you talk about the quarters and stuff. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, I didn't feel like I was quote unquote, like with my people at the beginning, you know, because mm. there were definitely guys who were very much the math whiz engineering technical kind of people in the classroom. And that was not my strength. Gotcha. Okay, but again, let's back up for one second. So, okay, if you had to sum up your time at the Academy in one word, what would it be? Transforming. What does that mean to you? Um, going from being an 18-year-old girl to a 22-year-old professional woman, um, transformed in intellectual ways, in physical ways, in um, psychological ways, just transformed, I think is probably the right, right word. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, so, so let's start at the beginning. So you show up for INDOC. Um, how did that 
how did that go for you? You come, you, you come up from Georgia, which I guess you were used to the humidity of, of New York. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> a lot of people like, come from like places where there's no humidity. They're like, oh my gosh, what is going right. on? Um, so that's good at least. But so you get there for Indoc. Um, how did it go? How did, how did that first few weeks go for you? So there was another person from my high school who got into the Merchant Marine Academy. He got in later than me and he had been, he really wanted to go to the Air Force Academy and, but he didn't get to. So we flew up together. Um, and that was back when your families could stand at the gate with you at the Atlanta airport. And so there was kind of a big send off at the gate. Um, we took a plane together. We stayed, uh, at that, I want to say that awful hotel in Great Neck. Do you know the one? <laughs> I, any, anyway, it was awful. And there was a whole lot of, um, plebes and family staying there the night before. And then there was a van for the next morning. And so, you know, everyone was very nervous and you had your suitcase and, um, I had gotten a haircut before I got there. So, uh, like a month before I had had pretty long hair and I just went and got a very short, very cute haircut. And, um, so I arrived ready to go. Other gals showed up with long hair and had some pretty brutal haircuts that first yeah, day. Yeah, you never so, do that. <laughs> yeah, I I was just like, you know what? I'm going to get a cute short haircut. I figured it would be like barbers cutting your hair. And some of those girls just, ugh, I really feel for some of my, my classmates that um, day. So, you know, we went and all stood in line and you checked in and, um, you know, stood there at attention while everyone was lining up. And I ended up in second company along with three other women. And then I think we marched to like put our suitcases up and get the, at that time, I don't know if they still do it. It was these khaki shorts and, you know, yeah. like a regular khaki top with the khaki shorts and horrible Converse tennis shoes that were impossible to run in. And I think baseball caps. Does that sound right? Listen, um, we were wearing the same thing in oh. 2000 when I went. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so like black socks that came up to your knees or yes. white. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and uh, they also issued us these like grandma kind of bras and these like oh. granny panties and the pajamas, oh. everything was definitely very grandma ish. And it's not that <laughs> I expected it to be sexy, but like the bra was that like itchy elastic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. That, um, that you, you just constantly want to scratch it. Right. It, it doesn't feel good. The fabrics holding sweat in. Oh. Um, and so, you know, you get issued all that stuff. We waited in line. I had to, even though I had short hair, I had to sit in the chair and then the guy like kind of like waved the clippers around. He didn't touch my hair and he was like, okay, you're gone. And then other gals just basically, it was like, you know, watching torture just with like scissors and dry hair and, oh. um, oh. and, and, you know, uh, the guys getting the buzz cuts uh, and that's kind of, I guess, my first memories of, you know, that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, how, how did, how did you do through INDAC? Did you make it through okay for the most part? I mean, yeah, yeah. It was all the physical stuff and the plebe knowledge, the inspections and learning how to roll your underwear and make your bed. You know, it's a, it's a hot New York summer and sometimes people were dropping like flies and that's just how it was. Um, when they put women into these other companies, I think the administration had made that decision, but hadn't really communicated it down. So there was definitely some surprise of upperclassmen, both during indoc and when the upperclassmen came back to start school. Um, there was definitely a kind of, whoa, what's going on here? Are you sure you're supposed to be in second company? Uh, vibe. Like, could you tell if anyone was like upset about that or? Oh, of course, especially the seniors. They had wanted to, there were some that wanted to make it through without the taint of being in a company that had women. Like somehow that was more macho, somehow that was better, somehow that was more elite. And so just once those guys got back, especially there was just a lot, I perceived in conversations and comments made to me that they were not happy about it. It hadn't been communicated as like a regimental plan or anything like that. And so there was not buy-in from the stakeholders as we say in corporate speak. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's tough. I, Um, and especially if some people were coming back from sea um, and being out in that kind of lifestyle to then coming back to the Academy with women and they're not expecting it. I just can't imagine. Um, all right. Well, let's let's talk about some of the high points first. Like what were some of the highlights and the memories that, you know, that you enjoy from your time at the academy? Well, you obviously have some great friendships that you end up with because you go through so much together. I think I enjoyed the academics a lot. Uh you know, certainly the regimental stuff that's part of what comes along with it. I wasn't a person that didn't uh, shine my belt buckle. I mean, I did what needed to be done. I wasn't, you know, super enthusiastic about it the way some other people could be like really into it. And I had an opportunity um, to go to Texas A&M my senior year to represent the Academy with another midshipman at a conference. I can't even remember what the conference was about, but, you know, spending, you know, a few days at another school as a representative of your Academy, it felt very powerful and wonderful and really going to see, see year and uh, going to exotic places, just getting to try out a career in a very exciting way, I think was pretty cool. I want to hear more about sea year and what that was like for you back in the eighties. Um, because it was still like two cadets went on a commercial vessel, right? So you paired up with someone. I paired up with my roommate and, um, she was an engineer. And, uh, at that time, women cadets were pretty rare. And for whatever reason, you know, the, I think they called them like the senior coordinator or cadet coordinator in New York. Didn't, you know, you would just show up. They didn't know which cadets were coming, what the deal was. And so I, the first ship we went on was a container ship going to the med. The cadets had gotten off a few days before. So, you know, there wasn't any kind of like changeover or anything, but 
you know, we just showed up and said, we're here. Here's our letter saying we're assigned to the ship. And um, there you go. And there's certainly, uh, I would say the vibe was kind of like, oh, you're here. You know, there was definitely some disappointment from uh, maybe the officers and the way they would word it would be like, well, who am I going to go ashore with now? You know, I can't go ashore with you. In general, I I would say there was definite uh, discomfort with women cadets. Um, But, you know, you had your C project to do and you had all the things that needed to happen. So, you know, you needed to be up on the bridge. You needed to stand watch all that. So, you know, um, you couldn't really be denied that. It just, the, the discomfort was palpable. Yeah. Yeah. So you said your C partner was your roommate. So it was uh-huh. another woman. Okay. So, so you, so you at least had her with, were, were there any other women on the ship itself? No, I don't think, okay. I don't think as a cadet, I'm trying to think back, but I don't think I sailed with any other women when I was a cadet. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you even in 2001, when I sailed, I did not sail with any women on my first ship. And, uh, and even then it was a little tough at times, uh, like the tension with certain people still in denial that women were in the industry. So I cannot even imagine what that must've been like for you in the eighties. Yeah, it definitely, um, I would say the second ship I went on was probably the toughest. It was a last ship and the chief mate was one of my classmates, fathers, mm. father, who's a father of a classmate. And, um, it was, you know, at that time, last ships, uh, were clearly not economical. People knew they were on a ship that was looking to be sold. I mean, it was just an unhappy place. Right. And, um, I took the place of a cadet who the captain and chief mate and others adored. Um, he was a big drinking, fun loving guy and they would all go ashore together and do the activities that I'll euphemistically call it carousing or whatever. And, you know, when I show up, it's pretty clear that's, I'm not going to be doing that. So, um, they're deaf. That was a hardship for me. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, but it's interesting because you still, you mentioned that you felt seer was a highlight for you. So did you enjoy, um, I mean, it sounds like it was tough, some of the dynamics on the ship itself, but um, overall, did you have an enjoyable experience getting to see different countries and, and getting to just be at sea? Oh yeah, absolutely. I liked being on the bridge. I liked navigating. I liked the cargo part of it. I liked the problem solving. And my second sea year, I was on a tanker and I really liked that. And um, so I think it's fair to say sea year is a highlight just because it is what you make of it. And it's just like going to sea for a living. There's going to be times when you're on a terrible run or you're going to Alaska in the winter time, but it's still a great lifestyle. Um, you know, it's still an incredible experience to be able to be on a ship and, um, go around the world. So, you know, the negativity definitely didn't, um, outweigh the positive experience for me. Yeah. Yeah. 
did you find people out there that were very um, supportive of you and what you were trying to do as a cadet? Oh yeah, absolutely. There were definitely some gems out there. Um, I can remember actually on that um, last ship, there was a career third mate, like a 60 year old guy who just sailed once a year. It was when MMMP was really tough, you know, for people to get jobs out of the hall. And so at that time, most of the people sailing on an MMMP ticket could only go out for 90 days a year. And so um, there was an older third mate. He was really awesome, taught me a lot, very supportive, kind of treated me like a granddaughter. Um, there was a third mate on the tanker I was on who um, he was a recent California Maritime Academy grad. So uh, he definitely um, was more progressive and just a nice guy. So, you know, having good people there and, and thriving with, you know, working with them, um, that was nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's good to hear. Um, as, so as your time uh, through the academy and through senior progressed, did you start to gain some clarity about your goals post post graduation? Did you start to decide like, Hey, you know, I want to sail and do this or what, what was that like? Yeah, I definitely thought, okay, I'm going to sail. This is what I'm going to do. And working in an office didn't really sound like what I wanted to do. And so I knew I wanted to sail, but I knew that going out of the union hall was not at that time a feasible option. And so um, senior year, you had to interview. Um, there were a few shipping companies hiring. At that time, Exxon would only interview you if you had sailed as a cadet, and I didn't sail as a cadet with Exxon. So I ended up interviewing with Chevron, and it was the first time they had come on campus in quite a few years. And um, I really didn't think I had much of a chance. And frankly, I I remember I I uh, you had to sign up for interviews. I, I don't know how it worked when you were there, but you had to sign up and you have a particular time slot for a half hour. And I just thought, Oh, screw it. I'm just going to go at eight o'clock, you know, and get it over with. And then later the feedback I got from the hiring person at Chevron was that, you know, I came in and kind of set the bar for the day and they didn't have anyone that really beat me was, was how they viewed it. And I've always kind of thought about that. It wasn't something I set out to do. It wasn't a strategy anyone set or explained to me. I kind of fell into it, but I think it worked well. That's, that's like a really intuitive of the, of the hiring people to identify, like to pay attention and realize like this person showed up early. So that is like a part of their personality that would probably make them a really good employee. Like seriously, like, kudos to them for paying attention to that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Huh? Okay. Well, before we move on to your, your post-graduation, um, were there any major lowlights at the Academy that you'd like to share? Well, we were just talking about getting a job with Chevron and, and I had um, two other job offers and, um, but I wasn't going around talking about them. And, 
it ended up one of my classmates went over to the administration. I ended up getting called over um, because there had been a complaint made about me that I was um, uh, accepting more than one job, preventing other midshipmen from getting job offers. Um, and which wasn't a true statement. It really upset me because I was happy for my other classmates that were uh, getting jobs in nuclear engineering or, you know, some people were going to work at insurance brokers or some people were going into graduate school. Like I was genuinely happy. And so um, it really struck me that it was a kind of a jealous and petty move. And then I had to go over there and explain which job offers I had gotten, what I had turned down, what I was waiting to hear back on, just mm. things like that. And it, it also felt a little humiliating, like, um, like I'd done something wrong when I really didn't. Um, and so for that, for me, uh, as kind of one of the last things that happened when I left Kings Point, um, definitely stayed with me. Mm. I think that similar to a lot of other women, you had to deal with um, sexual harassment, sexual assaults, um, eating issues, body image issues, because your body was being judged all the time. Um, I think that at the time I was there, that wasn't talked about. It wasn't anything front and center. I don't think there was any kind of sexual harassment training, no kind of uh, assault training, nothing like that. So I think those experiences that I had that were negative kind of made me have a tougher veneer. I tended to be a little bit aloof. I um, tended to kind of be a little androgynous, not to kind of ooze sexuality, just tried to blend in. And uh, I think that that's stayed with me from the academy and and you know i forgot to mention um a story about some of my women classmate um something that i feel guilty about to this day is um the women classmates of mine that i didn't stick up for so there were women in my class who had these very horrific nicknames that had been given to them by men in our class one gal was called Pretty Monster because the guys didn't know whether she was an ugly girl or a pretty monster. And they would call her that to her face. And um, she was in first company. There was another gal in my class who was a deck major and she had a um, facial hair issue. And the guys to her face um, called her cousin it. It was very painful for her. Um, it was very degrading to her and, um, there was a gal, I think a year ahead of me, they called the Tasmanian devil. There was a gal in the class behind me. Um, they called the troglodyte and I always, at that time, you know, you, you don't want to draw attention to yourself. You don't want to put yourself in the line of fire so that you're getting verbally abused in class. And so, um, I think that I was one of those women that was silently supportive, but I should have been more actively supportive of some of my women classmates who were harassed to a greater degree. 
and who were bullied based on their physical appearance. Um, I think it was very painful for them. Um, and, and they had a much harder time than I did. Um, much, much harder on a daily basis. You know, I don't think I've ever talked about that with anybody. I, it, but I think it's important for people to know it, not to feel sorry for the women who went to school then, but to understand that type of behavior from 20 year old boys. And I'll call them boys, um, towards women in their class. Yeah. Yeah. The, and those are the kinds of things that really stick with you for a long time, if not forever. Yeah. And, and it yeah. truly is a guilty feeling like you, cause at the time you thought, Oh, thank God they're not talking to me. Right. Yeah. They're not picking on me in class. But then, you know, I think especially as you grow older, you kind of look back and, and you just realize how, how absolutely cruel it was. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's tough. Did you ever um, speak to any of those women later on after graduation? And did that ever come up or? I've, I've talked about it with other women, like when we've gotten together at golf tournaments, things like that. And um, I have a friend who's a classmate. We weren't friends at Kings Point, but we're both lawyers in California. And he and I have talked about it. And he was not someone that was a bully or did those kind of things, but he definitely had an awareness of it. And we've had some deep conversations about it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's tough. Oh. Yeah. And I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be that person who just talks about, you know, how rough it was or seems to just want to say I had it tougher than you or, or which class was worse or which class was best. But I think it is an example of what can happen when you have a group of young men who have power over a group of women in that way. And I think that what I'm describing was not any different than what other women experienced. Yeah. And that whole idea of being silent, maybe you didn't get harassed, but the fact that you remain silent also has an impact on you, on them, on everyone. So it's just a big, it's complex. Right. And, and I'm not sharing the guilt I feel for some kind of um, forgiveness. I mean, I, it's what I have to process myself, but sure. I hope that when other people hear it, it they'll understand that we have this, this common shared experience and that, you know, the decisions you made as a 19 or 20 year old to be quiet and try to blend into the woodwork and, you know, uh, not suffer um, additional wrongs, um, it, it was probably what you would know to do as a 19 or 20 year old. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, before we move on to life post-graduation, what was, what was maybe like the key lesson that you learned from the academy that you took into your career? <laughs> hmm. um, I can do... I can dig ditches. I can do anything I have to do for 30, 60 or 90 days. You know, I mean, I truly can shovel sand with a toothpick. I can be on a miserable ship if I have to be. I can polish belt buckles till three in the morning. I think, you know, I think it gave me a sense that, look, you, you, can, you can do it. Just tackle it, put one foot in front of the other 
in anything that appears difficult, wake up in the morning and do it. You'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think it was about the Academy that made you that way? I think because, um, so much with the difficult academics and, um, sometimes the tough regimental life that, you know, you knew, okay, this is brutal, but I'm going to get through this finals week and I'm going to come out on the other side. I mean, you know, I, I think that's what did it. And, you know, when you go to a place where there's a very high attrition rate and the federal academies do have a high attrition rate and you see people that quit because they say, Oh, I can't do this one more day. I hate this place. Um, whatever. And then they quit, but then the next day is better. Or, you know, you know that they quit and it really wasn't that bad. That kind of informed me. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 King's Point's like a uphill marathon and there are all these hurdles. So you're right. Like it's all these benchmarks, like just make it through this ship right. and this date and this, that, and oh yeah. So right. I, your your yeah. life is in 30, 60, 90 day increments. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and once you make it, you, you kind of become invested, you know, you get to the end of plebe year and you're like, okay, you know, I made it. I've got decent grades. I'm going to start, you know, in the fall, I'll go to school for five months and I'll be on a ship and it'll be fine. You know what I mean? And so you could, you could kind of have these benchmarks that made you feel like you were making it through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one last question about the Academy. Did you play a sport back then? Were there, were there sports available for you? Um, there were sports available. It was, um, they had track and swimming. There was no women's basketball, no women's volleyball, no field hockey. I don't even know what sports are there right now, but um, I, and, and women sailed and then women would coxswain on the crew team. Mm-hmm. But when I was there, you didn't want to be on the crew team. That was kind of a, a like a slut shaming kind of mm. thing uh, where, Oh, you're on the crew team. So that's what you're there for. So um, I did not do any sports my time there. Gotcha. Yeah. When I was there, there were, there were definitely more like we had enough women to do softball, volleyball, basketball, but a lot of the women were multi-sport athletes so that we, we could have enough women uh-huh. for, for a team. Um, but I know that when I was there, we barely had enough women. And at times we didn't have enough women to even have a full cross country team. But now I see pictures. I mean, they have lacrosse, they've got everything. The Academy really has stepped it up with women's athletics. That's so, great. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Um, okay. So now let's move on to graduation. So you, you pass license exam, you have this job offer for Chevron. Um, tell me about that transition. Did you go right to work and how was your first ship and all that stuff? Oh yeah. I went right to work. Um, I think we graduated the first week of June and I probably went home for a week and then got on a ship and, um, flew to Alaska to Valdez and got on the Chevron California as an AB at that time, Chevron, you had to ship out for 90 days as either an AB or a pumpman. So and, let's, pa- let's pause there for a second. So oh. <laughs> for, for people, for, for people that don't know, 
um, you're basically saying unlicensed when you have a yes. license, but they make you do an unlicensed position first. Right. To just kind of learn the ropes. And um, I think it's a good system. And so an AB is the able-bodied seaman. So you're unlicensed, you're in the deck gang and you're standing watch. And then for the engineers, they would be a pumpman and on one of the, the big uh, 70,000 dead weight ton ships, which was running the pump room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you did that first and that yeah. was And then, um, so then I went on the Chevron Washington and uh, there was one other woman deck officer in the fleet. She was a third mate. And there were no women engineers, no people of color in the officer ranks. Um, I think there was one African-American man who was a chief engineer. And so it was very white male um, dominated, very Cal Maritime, California Maritime Academy dominated. Um, Kings Pointers also in their fleet. And then they had a lot of older Scandinavian guys who were um, just long-term Chevron employees also. So that was kind of the mix on the ships. Wow. Interesting. Did you feel prepared when you got on the ship based on your sea time and your time at the Academy? Did you feel prepared for life on that ship as an AB and then as an officer? Yes, actually I did compared to, the people coming from Cal Maritime, they go out on a training ship, not on commercial ships at that time. I don't know what they do now, but um, so the people who came from Cal Maritime had never like eaten in the officer's room, the way the officers got served their meals. They had never tied up on the bow in the same way. So I felt like I was pretty well prepared. I, pro I mean, technically, right, for, for the profession. At that time, Chevron had two 70,000 deadweight ton crude oil ships going up to Valdez. And then they had five double hull, handy size, handy size meaning coastwise tankers um, that carried about 250,000 barrels. And so the five coastwise vessels they had were all sister ships. So really, once you learned one, you were pretty good. Now, you mentioned the the atmosphere on the ship um, with like the, you know, the different mix of um, race and minorities. And um, how, so how did you feel as a woman going into that space? Uh, were you well received? I would say much better received at Chevron than I had been as a cadet. Chevron was a very progressive company and had not hired as many women as Exxon, but don't forget the oil companies in the eighties, uh, you know, as part of their hiring, they were going to hire a diverse workforce. And so the places where women really could get jobs and make advances were with the oil companies. And so mm. I felt much more comfortable. I had wonderful mentors, um, captains that really, were gracious and taught me. And, and in the end, I think once you're on a ship and you're a third mate, the captains want you to be successful. They don't want you to spill any oil. So if you're good at being a third mate and you're not going to spill any oil and you can tie up in an offshore mooring, you're good. And 
I think that in the Chevron fleet, there was a much greater focus on just being qualified. And I had people that really pushed me to have a great career, um, really advocated for my promotions to second mate and chief mate. And so it was a very different and much better experience. Plus I've made a ton of money. So that always helps. <laughs> and, and you ended up staying there for 10 years. So obviously you felt supported by that company. Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really good to hear. And now did you do Naval Reserve for your military commitment? I did. Yes. Okay. And that was just two weeks a year that you would fit in between your sailing? Well, I only did the two weeks once and then all the other years I was sailing so much that I would just get a waiver. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I know that that commitment has kind of changed throughout the years. So I was curious what it was for you mm -hmm. back then. Okay. Yeah, it was supposed to be six years in the Navy reserve, especially if you were sailing and advancing your license, it was not problematic not to go do the two weeks. Gotcha. Yeah. It's an interesting relationship between the Navy and the, and the merchant marine so right um okay so okay so then at the 10-year mark or around that time you you decide to leave sailing and go to law school is that what happened well i um i was sailing chief mate and i got married my husband was a um in the inland fleet for chevron we got married which was great and then i got pregnant and i will say that as much as I loved Chevron, they kind of didn't know what to do with me. I was a chief mate. I was pregnant. I, you know, got a note from my doctor saying, eh, she really shouldn't go work on a tanker off the coast, you know, the physical aspects, the exposures. And um, so I did a little bit of office work, but they just couldn't quite figure out if there was a mommy track in the fleet or if you came ashore for a few years. And so after my daughter was born and it was time to come back, it just kind of was like, yeah, well, you can go on a ship, but other than that, we don't really have a chance for you. And um, I just wasn't going to, you know, leave a baby for three months. So it, I wouldn't say it soured me. I would say it just took me a while to, kind of say, well, okay, I'm going to have other great opportunities at your loss. And um, I think that it was a low level decision made in HR. But if you, if I had really wanted to stay at Chevron, I probably could have marched into the, you know, fleet manager's office and, you know, pounded on the desk and got another deal. But I just thought, eh, I'll uh, take a little time and I'll go to law school and be a lawyer. It's so interesting uh, in doing all these uh, personal stories, I'm hearing quite often that that moment when a woman gets pregnant is really pivotal for like career and, and really it's like, it's, it's, it's a turning point for a lot of people where there's a decision that has to be made. And um, it's just interesting to hear how people navigate that, you know, because it's, it's different for everyone, what, you know, how, how you, how you feel about leaving a career, a career behind, especially service academy women who are, you know, obviously we're very motivated professionally. So um, yeah, it's just, that's interesting to hear that you had to kind of like make that decision. Um, yeah. And, and I think that, 
you know, I look back and I probably would have had great opportunities at Chevron. I probably would have gone back and gotten an MBA or something. But I also think, well, maybe that career had run its course mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I was ready to move on. So there you go. Yeah, definitely. So you went to law school. So how did that come about? Were you interested in law before that or? Um, yeah. And of course, um, as a deck major, um, I think we were required to take like introduction to Admiralty law or something like yeah. that. Did you? Yeah. Did, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway, I just thought, well, I'll do this. And, uh, so I started law school. My daughter was, um, I think nine or 10 months old. I went to night school. I didn't go like a three year day program. I went at night and took four years. It worked out well for my family. And then by the time I took the bar and was ready to start working, my daughter was in kindergarten. So it worked out. Yeah. So, okay. So, and so then you, you get through law school, you have a little baby who's going to school and, and then I guess you just started your career as a lawyer. Yeah. I think that, um, I, when I was in law school, I clerked at the Sonoma County district attorney's office, which was great experience because you got a lot of courtroom experience and writing experience. And, you know, when you go to see, you don't spend a lot of time doing writing and, um, it was a skill I probably wasn't as confident with. So that was a good experience for me um, as a law clerk. And then I went out and I worked at a couple of different small firms, uh, probably for the first few years. And really when I started to get more into employment law and a workplace safety law was like five years, seven years after law school, And that's really what I've been doing ever since then. Was that a big transition for you? Well, I mean, so many transitions. Was it a big transition for you you going from this life of being at sea and being home and at sea and being at home to then being at home and going to school and then being in an office for law? I mean, those are big transitions. Yeah, they are big transitions, but going to law school is very intellectually difficult. It's exhausting. It's a grind. And so, you know, in the same way that going to sea can sometimes be a grind. So um, I didn't find it to be a big switch in the work or the work ethic that you need. Um, You know, it was just what I thought I needed to do to keep my life um, moving forward. And don't forget, I was living here in California Um, I might have, if I had, like, if I had lived in Oakland or LA or somewhere at a big port, I might've just said, okay, I've had a baby. Let me get a job shoreside and I'll do whatever. But I didn't really have that opportunity because of where I was living. And so I did need to reinvent myself and have a, have a second career that did not rely on a degree in marine transportation. Yeah. Yeah. I love it though. I think it's great that you reinvented yourself like that. I think it's great. Um, all while, while also raising a daughter, you know, it's crazy. It's incredible. Um, so, okay. So what are you currently doing then? So you're doing, um, you're obviously a lawyer, but what's, what's the specialty? Employment law. And I do a lot of, uh, workplace safety litigation, which means when fatalities or accidents happen, 
at job sites. I um, end up defending the employers um, from OSHA citations, uh, whether it's Fed OSHA or state OSHA, and just work with companies on their safety programs. I, um, I also do some sexual harassment training uh, for companies to meet the California requirements. You know, just general kind of civil litigation. I, I know that's like a super generic term, but, you know, some days I'm in my office drafting discovery, which is really boring. And then other days I'm standing on a hillside, you know, where someone's had their arm cut off and you're there with the OSHA inspector and the sheriff and you're trying to figure out what happened. Well, so it's definitely a shift from what you were doing at sea, though, but uh, sounds fascinating. Well, it's in the same way that going to sea, you know, every day's at least a little different. Yeah. And I think in employment law and workplace safety, that's something that I enjoy is every day is very different. And yeah. I knew in law school, I knew I didn't want to practice family law because it seemed way too emotional. <laughs> it seemed... <laughs> it just seemed like you were, you would be kind of stuck on a merry-go-round and maybe there's some service Academy women who are lawyers practicing family law who will tell me it's the most wonderful thing. It just didn't appeal to me. Other areas like real estate litigation, man, that didn't seem uh, nearly as exciting. And um, I enjoyed when I was a law clerk working at the DAs, but I did, I looked around at the district attorney's office. There were no young mothers there. Mm -hmm. It was all single gals or women who were quite a bit older, whose kids were like in college and who didn't have the same kind of constraints. And so, you know, when I looked around in the different areas of law, um, even if something appealed to me, I tried to find the right fit for my personality too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you did. So. I did. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you currently feel about your decision to attend an academy? I'm glad I did it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so what's next for you, Karen? <laughs> well, I'm kind of in the twilight of my career. So I had 10 years going to sea and, you know, I had, you know, law school and baby and, you know, all the family stuff. And then I had kind of 10 years of working either for myself or at small boutique firms. And I think this last part of my career will be, I'm at a big firm. I get to mentor a lot of associates. I get to do a lot of business development. I get to go out on fatalities and horrific accidents and be the person that solves the problems in the moment. Um, and I like that. And so I think this will be how I finish out my career. I always try to have a um, pro bono project going. I've had various ones over the years. So I think I'll come across in the next year or so another fun pro bono project to work on and, um, you know, just enjoy golf and try to go to some events I'm not a big uh, Kings Point Alumni Association event person, but I do like going to the golf tournaments and seeing classmates and people like that. 
All right, Karen. So do you have any parting words for listeners, perhaps a key message to your fellow Service Academy sisters that you'd like to share before we go? Oh, to my Service Academy sisters, um, I send you love, encouragement, friendship, and kindness um, across the universe. I think we all share some common experiences. And I hope that over the next few years, as kind of we're, we're reaching an age where the first women that graduated um, and are at a kind of a retirement age and we've got great young women coming up. I hope we'll all stay connected and have a chance to get together. I love it. We're going to make it happen. Yes. <laughs> um, and before we go, uh, what's, what's one random fun fact about you just to end on a light note? I hate celery. No, um, I still, I still put hospital corners on my bed. Ah, have you heard that from other people? No, but I can tell you, I still fold my t-shirts into little squares. (laughs) Yeah, I still, so I still do the hospital corners. Actually, I just moved a year ago and I actually kept my Bowditch that has fuller 87 two on it on the top in black ink. Did you do that on your books too? Oh yeah. Yep. Okay. I, I still have my Bowditch too. Yeah. I, I can't throw it away. There's just something about it. I can't throw my Bowditch away. I agree. And, and maybe people don't know if, if, you know, Bowditch is this thick green book that's got just almost every aspect of navigation and learning and maritime. It's just, it's the book. It's and all in your Bowditch. That's what we used to say. It's all in your Bowditch. <laughs> yep. And you get it plebe year for, I don't know what class we get it for, but we have it and you use it the entire four years. And then frankly, when you're upgrading your license or anything else, you use it. Yep. Yep. You need it to pass license. You do for sure. There you go. Um, so All right. So can you let everyone know where they can find you? So um, actually Twitter is like a good way. I was an early adopter. So I am at Karen attorney. That's pretty easy, right? Look at you on Twitter. Like I, I I am the worst at Twitter. That's awesome. Okay. Karen attorney. (laughs) All right. Well, I will put that in the show notes. So anyone that wants to reach out to you can get in contact with you over Twitter. They'll shoot you a tweet. I don't even know if that's right. They'll tweet you, tweet at you. They will DM me, dear. Oh, they will. De- <laughs> listen, listen. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, it has been wonderful connecting with you, Karen. Um, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Well, thank you for doing all this. I hope to listen to many other podcasts and to be a cheerleader and ally for you. Awesome. Thank you, Karen. Hey, thanks, Victoria. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to visit the Service Academy Sorority website to see photos, comprehensive show notes, and contact information for each guest. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. In addition, if you enjoy what you heard here today, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. And if you'd like to be featured on an upcoming episode, please feel free to submit your contact information on our website at www.serviceacademysorority.com.